This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentile Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right, so we are continuing in our series on First Peter, and this by far is the shortest amount of text that we have uh, put before us to tackle today, and there's a good reason for that. This actually is a transition in the book. Uh, I mentioned that earlier, but Peter has been introducing the letter. He's been introducing who we are in Jesus, uh, how we are born again and made new if our faith is in him, and that if that is true about us, we now have a different standing with God. We were once enemies, and now we are children, part of the family, and that also means that our relationship with society around us has changed. Uh, We now are exiles or sojourners. This part of the letter, Peter is transitioning, picking up on some of those themes, but preparing us for the body of the letter where he actually gives us some direct and specific application as to what it would look like for Christians to live as exiles in society. So that's the next few weeks coming up. But today, I want us to slowly reflect on the transition. There's, there's a lot here. One of the things that we've picked up on, we even put it in the title of our series, A Sojourner's Hope, is the idea that in Christ, Christians, we are not home. That we are resident aliens. It means that we're not exiles in the sense that we've been pushed out of a country for a short time, but we're going to go back to our other country um, we, that wouldn't be the, the best way to understand it, but we're also not tourists. We're not just visiting. We actually are from another country, which we saw last week. We are a holy nation. We are God's people. We're from that land, but we actually now are to take residence in this foreign land. And that is called an exile, or we might call it a resident alien. So we've been reflecting on this idea that we're not quite home and I was thinking about that again uh, for this week, and I thought about when I was a kid, what home felt like and how I longed for it the first time I tried to spend the night at a friend's house, right? Do you you guys remember that? Can you remember back? I don't remember how old I was, but I went there, and everything was going fine, right? It was a little weird because they did things a lot differently than I did, but there was enough overlap to where I was like, these people are human, these people are normal, and they're not going to hurt me, and Things were lining up enough, and then we watched my favorite movie at the time, which was Ghostbusters, the original one, the first one. So we watched Ghostbusters. Hopefully I wasn't too, too young. Uh, and <clears throat> about, uh, about the time the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man came into the scene, I started to really miss home, right? If you don't know or don't remember, that's towards the end of the movie. We're coming down the home stretch, and I'm thinking to myself, oh yeah, we have to go to sleep after this. And then I started thinking about my own bed and I started thinking about how much I missed my parents. And there was this deep longing for home. 
And so one thing led to another and there may have been some tears. And before I knew it, my parents were there, took me home, all was good. And it was years before I ever got up enough courage to try to go back. But if you're like my wife and I asked her, I kind of asked her permission to share this. I just told her I was gonna say it. She told me stories about when she stayed the night at a friend's house and she, she was much more courageous than me. She saw it as the opportunity to stay up late you know, drink Mountain Dew and eat all sorts of little Debbie snacks and all the things that she normally didn't do when she went home. But I was a crybaby and I went home. But I remember that longing, that, that palpable longing that this is not my home, this is not my place. And I feel that now when I travel, right? Some of you travel and you can stay in the nicest hotels and the best beds and it's just still not like your bed. It's still not like your house, right? You long for home. Now I miss my family deeply Right? I'm removed from my, my closest community, my children, my wife, you guys. And so in that sense, we experience this longing for home. But in reality, even when I am home, there's still a longing for home, isn't there? So even when I think, okay, this is gonna be better, everything's better, it's still not quite home. It's still only momentary. It's still only approximate, And the Bible's clear that that's normal. That's what it means to be an exile. So we we know that life in this world is life away from home. Even if you're not a Christian, you understand that. And, And one of the maybe most palpable ways that we understand that is death. Right? If if we've if we belong here, if we've evolved to a place where this is our home and this is all there is, then how come when a relative or a close one dies, your response is not, oh, well, that's too bad. But it happens, you know? I mean, every, everybody's gotta die. But no, we, we long to see them again. We, everything in us says, no, this is wrong. Just like we talked about on Easter. This is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So especially in death, but even in the small things, we know that we are not home. All right, so now that that is before us, we need to talk about the resident part of being an alien, right? The resident part, the fact that we're called with responsibility right now in society. And Peter has spent the whole first half of the book, especially verses three through 10, unpacking the new identity in Christ. We now have in the new birth, a new DNA, that's, con- that's constantly replicating us and making us from the smallest parts of us uh, to the outer parts of us, the inner parts of us to the outer parts of us, more and more like our new creation. That's what's happening to us. And Peter unpacks that. But now in verses, chapter two, verse 11, all the way through chapter four, verse 11, Peter is going to speak about this idea of how do we live as resident aliens in society? We are and we're awaiting our home, but how do we live now? And so here is the sentence that I would summarize verses 11 through 12 in, and I'm gonna break it down and that's how we're gonna walk through the text, okay? So this is the sentence, you can just listen. The whole sentence won't be on the screen, but this is it. The Christian life is a sojourning witness and we, so, we witness as sojourners by our abstaining and maintaining abstaining from fleshly passions and maintaining a good life. That's how we witness. That's what we're called to. So first, the Christian life is a sojourning witness. 
All right, we see it right here in the text. Beloved, that word right there cues us for the transition, that word. Beloved, the ones I love, my dear ones. Buckle in, here we go. That's what he's signaling. Beloved, I urge you. That's another word that says here, here we're, we're turning. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh. But then verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So there's this idea of witnessing. So as people of God, our lives, our conduct is obviously important. Now this idea of exile, it's nothing new to the people of God, right? From the very beginning of the Bible, we see exile. Adam and Eve sin in the garden and they are sent out of the garden for their good, if you read it carefully, lest they eat of the knowledge of, of, of good and, sorry, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever, right? In a fallen state, God, God sends them out by his mercy and says, I will remedy this, but he sends them out into exile. And then you go a few chapters later, you see Abraham. Abraham is called to God, but in being called to God now, he now is called away from his family and society, and he goes and sojourns. He is in exile. And then, of course, you have Egypt, or I'm sorry, Israel and Egypt, right? They are in exile. They are resident aliens. Then you have people of Israel through different uh, deportations, but let's just say the, the largest one, the one that is probably on Peter's mind because he keeps quoting Isaiah. So this idea of the Babylonian captivity, God's people were taken away by the great nation of Babylon into exile. And then we see even in this day, the Jews, God's people in New Testament times were in exile under the reign of the Roman empire. So this is just This is it. This is the Bible. This is God's people. We are in exile. It's not new. 17 prophetic books give instruction to God's people in exile. 17. The Bible is filled with exilic content. And the New Testament describes us as exiles. So let me just tell you, we are exiles. We've always been exiles. We've always been strange, but Most of us have lived a lot of our lives where we didn't remember that. We didn't realize that. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But more and more we're realizing, oh yeah, Christians are exiles. This is not fully our home. So when we are exiles and we think about how we are to interact in society, do you guys remember the very first week I talked about a framework that I found helpful? And today I wanna introduce two frameworks, okay? And they go together. The first one is, how do we engage society? I mean, when you go to work tomorrow morning as an exile, what's your strategy? What is your strategy as a witness? Whether it's not work, maybe it's just the grocery store, it's Publix, Trader Joe's, wherever. When you're going in, are we aware that in every part of our life, we are a witness and what is our strategy? What's your strategy on social media? Sometimes I just throw up in my mouth when I read strategies on social media of how we engage culture, right? So sometimes I see a domination strategy, right? I'm gonna dominate, take back blank, 
take back anything. Anytime you're like, I'm going to take this back. You're saying that there was a time when we weren't exiles. So domination, I would say, doesn't work. Not a good strategy. The next one might be accommodation. Right? We just give in. Like, this is too much. Let's just, let's just give in. Let's find the flow. Let's get in the flow. And that oftentimes, uh, accommodation leads to fortification. So a privatizing, right? So I accommodate, and so now I fortify, and let's just get together and circle the wagons, and we're gonna fortify our faith and our community and protect ourselves. All of these come, I don't know if I said this, they come from Greg Thompson, a, a, a guy I've always found helpful, a pastor in Virginia, these words. But then what about incarnation? What about that? What about living out our full identity wherever God would call us as Christians in the world around us? I find a helpful model uh, from a church in New York City called Redeemer. They call this exilic discipleship. All right, and so I have, I have this for us on the screen. If you wanna put it up there, I'm gonna, I, I, this is a little professorial and I thought not to do this, but I think it's helpful enough and hopefully this will get back to a sermon soon. All right, so here you have the, what they call a Jerusalem discipleship model or a exilic discipleship model. All right, so let's start on the left. So the Jerusalem discipleship model views the church as a dominant culture, right? You even hear it in here, domination. We are the, quote, majority. We are the dominant culture, right? However, the Bible in exilic discipleship in all of these books of um, exilic teaching, 17 of them, we see that we actually are a minority culture. We actually are a subversive culture. We actually are a culture that seeks transformation, not domination. Uh, next, building a kingdom within a kingdom. The Jerusalem model says we need, this is more fortification. We need to build a kingdom within a kingdom and, and say all should come to us, right? But the exilic discipleship model seeks the prosperity of the kingdom they're in, right? This is what Jeremiah tells the exiles. When you're going into exile, you should seek the prosperity of the city. How? Well, build houses, have kids, live out your unique identity before everyone because then they will prosper and in their prospering will be your prospering. Then uh, expectations of comfort and security in Jerusalem discipleship. But in exilic discipleship, we have expectations of discomfort and insecurity. Next, uh, in Jerusalem discipleship, our identity is taken for granted. In other words, there's a lot of overlap. I, can take, I don't need to know as much of the Bible. Right? I, don't, I don't need to be as equipped in order to understand why I believe what I believe. Why? Because in the culture, I expect our, our values and our beliefs to be so overlapping that it won't matter. Right? My identity can be taken for granted, but we understand in an exilic idea that your identity is always being challenged. So for me to say the way we engage culture and that Peter is teaching, that we should live our unique identity wherever we are called, we actually expect that we might be different. We actually expect that that might be a challenge. Then triumphalistic attitude towards the surrounding cultures, right? Just that's a sort of dominant again versus a servant attitude versus a seeking to serve, a seeking for blessing. Okay, we're done with that slide. If, I don't, if we leave it up there, let's keep reading it. 
So, so now, back to a sermon, right? Those models, these ideas, they reveal to us our disposition. Even the disposition of our heart, what we would expect, how we would engage, how we would lean in. They shape us. They change us. This is the context. So yes, we're to be witnesses. I don't think that was new to us this morning. Maybe we're reminded. But what context are we witnessing in? We are witnessing in a context that we are sojourners. We are exiles. This is not Jerusalem. This is not the new Jerusalem. This is not that. That is coming. It's, it's coming down here. Jesus is gonna bring that at the appropriate time. But right now, he is bringing it through our witness as sojourners. Now, Peter will unpack that over the next few weeks. But how? How are we witnesses as sojourners, right? That, those were frameworks, but how? How exactly? And he introduces this by abstaining and maintaining. First, abstaining from passions of the flesh. Look with me in verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. John Owen, in his book on overcoming temptation, talks about the fact that there are three things that wage war on us. There's the world, that is the systems of the world that are against God and his kingdom that attack us. There is the evil one shooting flaming darts at us, attacking us. And if those are the only two, he said, then we could build some protection, almost like a castle. We could move to higher ground. We could build a wall and we would be protected. He said, however, what if there's an enemy on the inside of the gates? Then it doesn't matter how thick your wall is. You would still lose. And his point was, there is. There is an enemy inside the gates. And it's that part of you, although dead, did you know there's a part of you that when you trusted in Christ, your old self was dealt the death blow. But it's not dead yet, it's dying. And it will die. It's bleeding out right now because Jesus conquered it. But in its last breaths, the part of you that is not submitted to Jesus, which the Bible calls your flesh, will do everything in its power to try to bring the new self into the darkness. That's How does he say it? It's waging war against your soul. That's every part of you. It's waging war. It's attacking. We are under attack. The Christian life is a battle, not just from without, but from within. And that's one of the things that makes Christianity so unique. This isn't just morality. We're not fine in the problems out there. The problem is everywhere. It's as far as sin goes, as the hymnist Isaac Watts said in the Christmas carol, as far as the curse is found, that's how far redemption has to go. And the curse went everywhere, including in our hearts. And and Peter draws this to our attention. We must abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's waging war against us. 
And this word abstain is used in other places in the New Testament to exhort us to ethical living. To exhort God's people to abstain from influences inside and outside that would fuel our desire to live antithetically to our new life in Christ. That's what's happening. And that's what we are to abstain from. So now this may include sexual sin, which is normally where we'll go here oftentimes in the church. And that's fine because that's included, but it's not limited to that. The word is used elsewhere to refer to any uncurbed human impulse. This word abstain, abstain from any uncurbed human impulse. So commentators will point out, and I think what Peter has in mind, maybe at the forefront here, is that fleshly desire to be socially accepted even when it motivates ungodly behavior. Now, it's a good thing to be socially accepted, right? I'm gonna get into that. He says that actually. But not when that desire to be socially accepted leads us to be willing to ungodly behavior. Now, where is that happening in your life? Just just think. Where are we, because we're not perfect, where are we seeking to be accepted Letting that desire take us into sinfulness. Is it in the way we speak about others? Right? Are, are we above reproach in the way that we speak about others when they're not around because everyone else is doing it? Is it in the way that we dream of using our resources as other people talk about the way they dream of using their resources? And I'm not just only talking about money here. Everything that you have everything that you desire, right? Do, are, we, are we being swept up into keeping up with whatever that is? It's something to think about. But what's really important here is that Peter doesn't seem to be thinking in binary terms. In other words, it's not like everybody outside the church is evil, everybody inside the church is good. You see, there's actually much more overlap between what we value and what the world values. Theologically, we call that common grace. And that is to mean that the world is not as bad as it could be because God graciously keeps it from being as bad as it could be. So therefore, we should expect that there are some things that we do as Christians that will be seen as honorable. And Peter is saying that. Instead of saying, they're bad, we're good, Peter is challenging us to live in a way where we seek to fully live out our identity in Christ. And when that conflicts with the values of society, we must be willing to endure graciously the grief and alienation that will inevitably result. That's what he's calling us to. Now, we must be really careful here not to conflate cultural values where there's overlap with Christian identity. And let me tell you what I mean by that, all right? In this culture, in our country, for years, and it had lots of good applications, but for years, the cultural values of what it was to have a family, what marriage was, generally what sexual ethics were, there was a lot of overlap between the church and the culture. And at some point in some 
pockets of the church, we conflated cultural values with Christian identity. And we made them one and the same. But the problem is, or a problem, is that culture changes. And Christian identity doesn't. Now, the way we live it out certainly does, right? But the culture changes of what it finds right and good and moral, doesn't it? So if you said Christian identity was a one-to-one relationship with cultural values, then when the culture starts to change in any way, there's separation. And then we have a choice. We try to dominate and take it back, right? No, that was ours. We got to take it back. It's like, well, it was never Christianity. There was, that was just a place of overlap. And we rejoiced in it and it was good. But now we still are called to live out our identity faithfully. And even as the gap widens, Peter's saying, in certain areas, there will be areas where the, their overlap remains and in there, live fully as Christians. And over here where there's a growing gap, continue to live fully as Christians. The only difference is, is now you might be seen as offensive when before you weren't. Now you might be seen as dangerous, bigoted, when before you just made sense. You see, in every culture, if we're living our Christian identity, we will be seen as honorable in some ways, and we will be seen as dangerous, foolish, and bigoted in another sense. In every culture. And it's always moving. It's always dynamic. It's always changing. And so if we do not abstain from this desire to fit in in such a way that when culture changes, we'll accommodate, then we're not living out our Christian identity. If we desire to to take it back so that we still fit in, then we're dominating. But to be incarnational is to live out our full identity wherever we would be. Lastly, by abstaining from passion of the flesh and then maintaining a good life. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The NIV says that they may see your good life. I like that. And the reason is, is because this word conduct, we've seen it before in 1 Peter. The word conduct means way of life or lifestyle. It describes your orientation towards the world in every way. In 117, where we saw it before, Peter exhorted the readers to be aware that they were being observed by God, right? Do you remember that? Live before God with fear because your father does not judge impartially. In other words, God is paying attention to your lifestyle. In every respect of your life, he's observing. And it's not this wagging of the finger, it's the loving parent. But that parent also happens to be the judge of the universe, Peter says. And here he uses the same word. God, your father, is not the only one who's watching every aspect of your life. But you are being observed also by unbelievers in every area of your life. And Peter is saying that same Christian lifestyle that you would live before God, to whatever extent possible, your life should be characterized by a way of life that even the pagans recognize as good. Now we see a point of contact here with other places in the Bible. James 3, 
Who is wise and understanding among you, James says. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. There it is. Let the wise person live their good life so their deeds can be seen. Most notably though, Peter is most likely pointing to Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, let your light shine before others. This is our call to worship that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. If I were to hand out a sheet of paper to everyone in here and I just asked you a question at the beginning and I said, describe to me in one paragraph your vision of the good life. What would your vision of the good life be? I think we'd probably find a lot of similarities. We'd probably find some differences. I know for me, there would be things that would come out of my heart that I would never write down of what I think the good life is. And I'm pretty sure that would be true of you as well. But in the, we don't have to ask ourselves, what is the good life? What is the true vision of the good life? You know, Greek philosophers were after the good life for a long time. Right? If, if you've ever read Aristotle, he's all about the good life. The upright life. The life worthy of being pursued. The examined life. The thoughtful life. But all of us have a picture of the good life. And Jesus gives us the picture of the good life in Matthew 5. Remember, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the picture of the good life. It is the Christian ethic. It is the ethic of the kingdom of God. That is what Matthew chapter 5 and 6 is about. It's the ethic of a transformed life in every way, filled with mercy and purity and faithfulness to your spouse Faithfulness in all relationships. Treating others with dignity rather than as objects to be dehumanized, sexually or otherwise, in any way. You see, it's not mainly what we might consider heroic, right? Like running towards the building that's on fire. Although it may lead to that. And in some cases it has. But the beauty of the good life shines through in the way that we forgive others. Right, the way that we restore others in relationship after they have completely wronged us. A traditional shame-honor culture is never gonna do that. A culture that says, I make my own self and I pick myself up by my bootstraps, a culture like that is never gonna do that. It's because that's your fault. You had everything and you gave it up, right? You deserve my judgment. You deserve to be banished. But in the gospel, the kingdom ethic, we restore people after we forgive them. We seek reconciliation and restoration in relationship. We even care for our enemies. We don't just seek the good, like a traditional culture seeks the good of people who are from the same family. And that's seen as a beautiful thing, right? The Christian church cared for sick people, started hospitals, but not just for their own, but for everyone. And that is what drove every leader in that time crazy. And we can find letters written by emperors for the first hundreds of years of the church that say those pesky Christians, they keep one-upping us by not only taking care of their own sick and poor, but by taking care of the sick and poor 
that we are leaving to die. But even they have to admit, even though, what does he say? They speak against them as evildoers. They look at it and they say, but it is beautiful. They couldn't deny it. They can't deny it. See, in every part of our life, we are called to be witnesses. We are called to let the good life through our brokenness shine through. I'll never forget something so simple, something I took for granted. When we lived in California, we had a few neighbors that we knew and and they weren't Christians and we were talking to one of them right after Scarlett was born. And they had lived in that neighborhood. They had lived in San Diego longer than we had by some time. And we had lived there for less than two years, maybe about two years. And we, Leah had just given birth. And of course, you know uh, that those first few weeks are pretty chill and low key. Now, what I'm used to, (laughs) yeah, I'm glad you picked up on the joke. So what happens is what I'm used to is because they're actually the opposite of chill and low key, People care for us, right? They bring us meals. They come and visit. They send flowers. They send texts. texts. They, they, uh, they shower you with care and with love. And it's not just when you have babies. It's also when you're sick or when you're discouraged or whatever. And, and she was asking us why people were coming. And we started talking, oh, well, those people are from our church. They're bringing us food. And she was blown away. She's thinking, I don't even know people. And I've been here longer than you and you know people and they're bringing you food and texting you and sending you flowers and cards and they're not your blood relatives. And I thought to myself, that's nothing. That's just what we do. You see, it's not always heroic. Sometimes it is, but it's not always heroic. Our lives are a witness Sometimes I wonder if you people are like me. And this is what I would be doing right now if I were you, right? In that pause, I would have quickly had the potential to run to all of the ways that I failed, right? Like, oh, well, I didn't text so-and-so and I knew they had a bad week and we prayed for them at community group and I haven't followed up with them and I haven't called my parents in months. I just run to all the ways I fail. I don't know, it's just programmed in me. And I think you are like me. And there was a phrase when I first became a Christian that just haunted me. And it was this, be careful in how you live because you might ruin your witness. Have you heard that? I haven't heard it in a long time. I'm in a different tradition and holiness looks different. That should be a joke too. But there was this mentality of that people are watching and you can ruin your witness. Now, there are things that are really bad ideas for us to do, but what happened to me is when I heard that phrase, ruin my witness, it put a crushing weight on me, right? The thought of making a mistake that that could make me unusable by God was terrifying. That if I made a mistake, I could ruin my witness. That people would look at me and in me discredit Christianity. I had ruined my witness. It was crushing. 
And at some point, I realized, you know, I think the main way I can really ruin my witness is if I point others to me and not Jesus. That's the way I can really ruin my witness. You see, what happened was I got so fixated on not ruining my witness that I became self-righteous, right? I looked at all of those activities that I thought, oh, well, that would be ruining my witness. Oh, and look at those people. They say they're Christians, they're not doing that. And then I became self-righteous. And then all of a sudden, my standing before God, the, the, his ability to use me in his kingdom as a witness, it got directly linked to my performance, So it went from a fear of messing up and God not being able to use me, went from a rat race of making sure I was being good so God might use me. And both of those are evil. Neither of those are the gospel. You see, whether it's my honorable conduct or my failure, either one I'm living in, I needed to point people to the source of my hope, which was Jesus and not me and my life, which is a response to that hope. You see, if we don't, Christianity becomes a mere form of moralism and the good life becomes an abstract principle and not a person. The good life becomes morality. It becomes doing good. And what the heck is that for anyway? Everyone wants to be good, but the gospel is a person. It's Jesus. So I don't want to point people to some abstract principle. I want to point people to Jesus, the one who pursues me, the perfect exile. You see, Jesus wasn't born into exile and has a hope that one day home will come to him. No, he was born never. All right, he always existed and he always existed in home with the father, In perfect love, perfect unity, perfect life, overflowing. And then he left that to become an exile. He left that to become an exile. And he didn't even have a home. You notice that in the Gospels? They're in so-and-so's home. They're in so-and-so's home. They're in so-and-so's home. They're never in Jesus's house. In fact, they're like, hey, where are you going to go? He's like, don't know. Don't have anywhere to go. Nowhere even to, don't even have a hole, don't even have a nest. He was the perfect exile. He lived the perfect exilic life where we fail. He left home so that by coming to pursue us, we might gain a home. That we might embrace the hope that is in Jesus and we gain a new home, a new life that's not futile, but that's filled with life. That's the gospel. And that's what I want to point people to. Not how I can construct my own life out of morality, but no, let me tell you, the life, the things that you see, they're beautiful. And anytime I'm a billboard of beauty of God's in the world, it's not from me. It's from Jesus. The one who pursued me, the one who's changing me, the one who's transforming me. That's where the power is. And so with that, We'll stop for this week knowing that the next three to four weeks, if we don't get that, we will find the next three to four weeks in First Peter as utterly scandalous. If we don't find our identity in being pursued and made children of God, and that's who we are.
And that's what we point people to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent the son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you left home to give us a home. You left home to go into exile so that us exiles would one day find home. And we're not the choice people. You didn't look down and say, oh, they, I need them. They are the choicest of people. You looked down and you said, I want them. I love them. And I choose them even though they're not the choice people because there are no choice people. So we thank you. We ask that you would continue to change us. Use us in this world, wherever you would call us in Jesus' name. Amen.